All right, so we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 55. Um, we're going to be going through the whole chapter, starting in verse 1. I'm excited to be here uh, with you all to get to talk about a passage that has been very nourishing to my own soul here this last month. Uh, so Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful day that you have made. May your people rejoice. May we be glad in it. Thank you for your mercies that are new each morning, for an invitation that calls the world to come to you, to come without payment, come without price. May we come to you this morning with hearts ready to hear your word. May your spirit teach us this morning from your word. It's all in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So I'm going to start today on a real sad note. So I'm just preparing you right off the get-go. This is a sad story. Um, it's a story called The Little Match Girl by Hans Christian Andersen from the 19th century. It's a short story, basically a poem. And I found this while I was studying a commentary on Isaiah, and they put it as the introduction to this passage. And upon reading the story and hearing what they said, I thought, this is weird. It seems like a strange story to put in this beautiful passage about invitation and warmth and coming to the God of the universe. But I read it, and then I studied, and the more I studied, the more it made sense. So just to share with you briefly this story, um, it's about this little girl. Um, she's very poor, destitute in England in the 19th century. Um, her job is to go around selling matches. This is before child labor laws, so little girls could go work and were expected to. And she's out on New Year's Eve. It's cold outside. She's freezing. She's not dressed properly. She doesn't have coats. She doesn't have the right clothes, so she's cold outside. She's hungry and thirsty. 
Her feet are worn down, but she can't go home yet because you know she'll be in trouble if she tries to return before selling any matches. She comes from an abusive home. She's never known what it's like to be loved. She goes out in the cold, trying to sell her matches, but it's New Year's Eve. No one's out buying things right now. So she remains out in the dark, hungry and thirsty, but she sees other people. She sees into these windows of families celebrating and happy. There's warmth, there's light, there's joy. They're drinking. The kids are all drinking milk. The adults are drinking ale. Everyone's happy and celebrating the new year. They have plenty of food and warmth, and she sees into these homes, but no one sees her. So she remains outside. Sadly, she starts striking her matches, trying to just get a little bit of warmth, trying to steal a little warmth from these things. And after a few matches, she falls asleep from the cold and she freezes to death. It's a horrible, sad story. Unlike or like the little match girl, without Christ, we find ourselves out in the cold, in the darkness, hungry, thirsty, nowhere to turn. The only hope we have is maybe a little warmth in our fingertips, but no hope of saving. We have no joy. We're out in the dark, hungry, cold, thirsty. However, unlike the little girl, our plight has not been unnoticed. The king himself has seen that we are out in the cold. He knows that we will die apart from his invitation. And it's in that king who extends a warm and welcome invitation to all of his people. And that's where we get to study here today. Isaiah 55, I believe, is about this great invitation that comes from a glorious God. Before we dive in, I want to give a little bit of feedback because we're jumping into Isaiah 55. That's towards the end of it. Um, the first 39 chapters, filled with a bunch of oracles and prophecies, largely concerning judgment, but with scattered promises of hope throughout. It's talking about how the nations have failed, how Israel has failed, how Judah has failed, how they haven't held up their end of the covenant. They haven't done the things they promised they would do. And because of that, there is a judgment that is coming. But God doesn't leave them to their judgment. He promises hope. Particularly in chapter 40, we see a change where he promises comfort, comfort to my people. And from then on, we see these repeated promises of restoration, of comfort that will be received by those who put their faith and trust in, in this God. Particularly in uh, chapter 53, we're introduced to this idea of the suffering servant. Someone who will come and suffer in the place of the people, who the sins of the people will be placed on him, and he will be put to death but he will not stay dead. He will come back to life and he'll rule and he'll reign. And it's confusing for the people. And then in chapter 54, it talks about how Israel, get ready. You better expand your tent, better expand your land. It, your, your people are going to grow and they're going to grow abundantly. I'm about ready to do a new thing. I'm going to establish a new covenant. Get ready. It's coming. And that's what brings us to Isaiah 55, this great invitation. The invitation is being set forth, and now God's people are invited to come to him. 
So that's where we dive in. At verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So the first question that we have to ask is, who is this invitation for? We see it's for everyone who thirsts. Not only is it for those who thirst, but it's those who thirst and have no money. They're at the end of the rope. They have nothing they can turn to for hope. They have no money. They have no chance to improve their position. All they know is they're thirsty and they're broke. They have no way to change their circumstances. There's another group of people. These are the ones who are thirsty, but they're chasing after other things. In verse 2, we see, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? These are people who are thirsty in themselves, but they're chasing after other things in this world. They're trying to find satisfaction, trying to find something to quench their thirst, but they just can't do it. In verse 7, we see this general call for the wicked and sinful who need to turn from their actions and thoughts and return to the Lord. So who should come? All those who need compassion and pardon from a holy God. So the question I have for you, are you thirsty this morning? Maybe you find yourself like the first person. You're at your wit's end. You can't go another step. You don't know where else to turn you don't know what else to do. You've recognized your own poverty and you're there stranded, thirsty with no way to alleviate it. I believe many of us here in America, particularly a land that has been greatly blessed, probably find ourselves closer to the second person. We find ourselves as one who's thirsty, but we're trying to chase after these other things. We're trying to find satisfaction in other ways in our lives. One pastor put it this way, there's a kind of person who's thirsty and broke, but another kind who still has money, and he's spending it. He still has strength, and he's laboring. He's still spending, still working, still dreaming, chasing, searching, experimenting, looking at different job, a different city, a different car, different house, different wife, new computer, new boat, new books, new bike, new grill, maybe new season tickets, new diet, new looks. There's still a lot of looking around this person feels he has left. But still, there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. No fountain of youth that they can find. Every triumph peters out. The applause starts to fade. The boat becomes boring. The style passes. And everything new gets old. And the options get fewer and fewer. At the end of the day, even this person is still thirsty because God has placed it in the heart of man, a desperate need and longing thirst in your very soul for himself. And nothing you try to fill that with will satisfy. Nothing can fill that void. You could spend your whole life striving to succeed in this world, but at the end of the day, we're reminded of the voice of Christ. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Or put in the context of Isaiah 55, why do you spend your money? Why do you labor on that which does not satisfy? To these people, we see this invitation in John 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
That's the invitation we're confronted with this morning. Coming to Him, drink. Coming to the water. So what are we to do? How do we answer this invitation? After this, we see a few commands. Now, a lot of us, when we hear commands, we think, oh boy, I I don't want to think about the commands. But if the command was go eat cake, if the command was go enjoy a beautiful fireworks show, if the command was go and have a wonderful time with your family and friends celebrating a great, great and glorious thing, those commands seem pretty good. Those commands are something like, I, I think I could do that. that. That doesn't sound too hard. And right now, these are some of the commands that the Lord is presenting to his people. Come to the waters. Come to Jesus. That is one of the primary commands in response to this invitation. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. What do thirsty people need? Need something to drink. So Jesus says, come, come have water. Quench that thirst in your soul. They need nourishment. So he says, come, buy milk, nourish yourself, grow, mature, be blessed. Come, buy wine, celebrate God's goodness and blessing. Many of us think that God only has water for his people. And if that, it's probably some lukewarm, kind of nasty water. We think he leaves out all the good stuff. And if there's milk, it's probably skim milk. And if there's wine, well, there's not wine. There's not going to be any wine. No celebration, no, no happiness, no joy. We think of God as this boring and dull individual who does not wish to bless his people, but just restrict them and confine them to rules and regulations. Well, he's withholding all the really good stuff. He's holding that back. He doesn't want you to have that and experience it because he's just kind of strict like that. But God isn't that way. He offers his people to quench their thirst in streams of living water. God offers whole milk that will fully nourish and bring you to maturity. And God offers the best wine, not to get drunk, not to ruin your relationships, but a wine that will bring these people into celebration and exhilaration and joy over what he has done. So come buy without money and without price. It's kind of an odd word to use there, right? Come buy without money, without price. Okay, well, if it's without money, without price, why not you just say, come receive, come just enjoy. Here you go, free things for everyone. But it's not that way. It says, come and buy. You still have to buy it. It still requires you to come, to come in faith, believe that you can receive it. And when you do, it is free for you. Now, that's an important thing. It's free for you. And when I worked with CSU, I used to have the opportunity to go to conferences. One time I got invited to this um, kind of party one evening uh, by some company. They're trying to show their product, and so they invite a bunch of people. It was this beautiful rooftop um, get-together in Nashville, um, and they rented out the whole roof, and they had um, pretty much these open areas where you could order whatever you want. You could get food, entrees, desserts, drinks. Everything was free. You just walked up to it, 
and ordered it, and they would bring it to you. However, at the end of the day, someone paid for that. That wasn't just the hotel out of the goodness of their heart doling out a bunch of free things to folks. Someone ended up with a bill. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But what else are we supposed to do with this invitation besides come buy without money, without price? We're called to listen diligently, eat what is good, delight yourself in rich food, incline your ear, come to me that your soul may live. Again, these are not oppressive commands meant to stifle and to destroy, but meant to give you joy and blessing forever. God calls us to listen diligently to hear his good word. Why? Because Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night and be careful to do everything written in it. Why? Because then you make your way prosperous. Then you have good success. It's because it's good for you to listen diligently to the word of the Lord. Eat what is good. Don't spend your time eating things that are bad for you, that won't satisfy, but eat what is good. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you will be satisfied. Delight yourself in rich foods. God's not stingy. He's not giving us moldy bread, but he tends to pour out on us a lavish feast that will be rich and enjoying and full of blessing. Incline your ear Eagerly wait for the king's command because with it brings blessing and goodness so that your soul may live seated in the throne room of heaven where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Next week, Chad Barlow is going to preach on Psalm 16 and I think there's going to be a lot of joy in that message. This isn't a time that's going to be dull. Eternity is not going to be boring but it's going to be a time of celebration and joy and excitement for all the blessings that God wants to lavish on his people. The final thing we're to do is to seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. This invitation will not be offered forever. At some point, you will either die or Jesus will come back and the offer's over. And if that offer is not accepted, if you do not come to the foot of the cross, Scripture tells us that there will be judgment. Your sin is serious. The consequence is eternal hell. There's no way to sugarcoat that. There's no way to try to make it seem, oh, it's not that bad. It is that bad. Seek the Lord while he may be found, because if you do not, there is eternal hell. There is eternal torment because sinning against the holy God demands it. Justice perfectly demands it. Holiness cannot stand sin. The king of kings will not have those who continue to reject him at his table. Time is running out. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. No one's promised tomorrow, but the reality is that despite a God whose justice demands payment, there is mercy and an invitation to receive grace upon grace. And it's found in all those who come and buy. Not bringing your own righteousness, not cleaning yourself up. Come and buy without money, without price. So that call is for you if you haven't done that.
I ask that you consider that you come because there is a reality. But there is one that got there's also an invitation that has been extended to you. Finally, this one's for everyone here, whether you've accepted Christ or not, whether you've repented and believed in him or not. It says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Sin will kill you. What does it look like to eat what is good, to delight yourself in rich foods? It's a life that's spent forsaking richest, richer, uh, wickedness. I almost said richardness, not richardness. I love Richard. Um, um, sin will kill you. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You can chase sin as much as you want. You can indulge your heart as much as you want into its very full content. And at the end of the day, you'll still find that it was all meaningless because you were created for something completely different. We see Solomon talk about that in Ecclesiastes where he says, I did everything I wanted. Any pleasure I wanted to enjoy, whatever it was, I partook. And at the end of the day, I found it was all meaningless. Chasing after the wind. It had no ability to satisfy. One commentator dialed this up specifically for Americans. Now here we're about ready to celebrate a great holiday. I love 4th of July. Don't get me wrong. But one of the things I hate is nominal Christianity. And that's something that's rampant in our country. Typically, American Christians think that we could just tweak our American way and American thoughts. They think, well, maybe I just make a decision for Christ and leave it at that. They don't want to join a certain church because it, it challenges them a little bit. It calls them to die to some things. They don't like that very much. Ultimately, they want to just be nice, harmless, church-going people with no repentance, no submission, no forsaking of self, no pursuit of Christ, and all of that covered up in a glaze of sentimental religion on Sunday mornings. This is not what God has in mind for us. Forsake sin because it wants to kill you, but God wants to give you life, life to the full. Sin won't satisfy, it'll only leave you empty and wanting more, so come, Enjoy the rich feast at the table of God. So how is this accomplished? We go back to verses 3 through 5. This is accomplished by the establishment of a new covenant, established by his sure love for David, rooted in the promise in 2 Samuel that I will establish a king from the line of David, and his kingdom, there will be no end. It's here that we see points to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is that king that will be established for all time. He is the one who will come and establish a new covenant of God's everlasting, steadfast, and sure love. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor or brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. How can we be sure of this new covenant? It's because it's not rooted on us. It doesn't depend on you. It's not your ability that has established that covenant. It's rooted in God's own witness. His leader, His commander, His Davidic king, and that king is Jesus Christ. Through Christ we see all the nations being blessed. God is establishing His new covenant people and it's greater than anything Israel could have ever imagined. God is building not just a nation, but a church. And that church is going to come from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Friends, those who come to God are part of a nation that's better than any nation here on this world. While we celebrate the freedoms of this nation, as good as this nation is, it is nothing compared to the nation that God is drawing us to for all eternity. God is calling all peoples to Himself, all who have fallen short, all who are thirsty and weak, all who have been laboring, trying to satisfy themselves. He invites all, come without payment, without price. Verse 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. How can this be? How can we come without payment, without price? How can a just and holy God have compassion on the wicked? How can he abundantly pardon? We see the answer to this question in the very nature and character of our glorious God. And this is our second point, and there's only a two-pointer here. So this is the last point, as well as the second point. So how do you see God when you approach Him? This is important. How do you portray God to your kids? That may be more important. Who is God to you? When you see your own wickedness before a holy God, what is your response? It's like a servant child out in the field. I grew up in southeast Colorado. When it rains, we go out and play in the mud. Here in the city, there's less mud because we have a lot more concrete. But out on a ranch, there's a lot of mud everywhere. And you can imagine a child going out, playing in the mud, and then being told to come inside. But if you're coming inside to a rich person's house, a wealthy person beyond all imagining, and in that house, there's a very simple rule. There can be no mud in this house. You've just been out playing in the mud all day. But you get told, come, come inside. What do you do? How do you approach that master? You know there's the rule, but what are you going to do? Are you going to try to clean yourself up? Maybe you go find the hose, try to squirt yourself off. 
say, well, I, I know the sign says no mud, but I'm sure a little bit of mud will be okay. Do you try to clean yourself as best you can, hoping that will be good enough? That's not what this is an invitation to. This is an invitation to come. The rule is true. No mud is allowed. But come to the Master, and He will make you clean. It's His very nature to do so. In Exodus, Moses asked God, show me your glory. And God tells Moses, I will show you my glory. I will show you my glory by having all of my goodness pass before you. And I will have my goodness pass before you, and then I will say my name. That's God revealing his glory. In Exodus 34, 6-7, we see the Lord proclaiming his name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What is this passage not saying? One put it this way. It's not the Lord, the Lord, exacting and precise. Or the Lord, the Lord, tolerant and overlooking. Or the Lord, the Lord, disappointed and frustrated. How often is that how you approach God? Is he's the Lord, the Lord, disappointed and frustrated. God, I failed again. And you just see him there shaking his head. Shame on you. Be better. Try harder. No, it's the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious. But we are confronted with something. How can the God, merciful and gracious, ready to pardon, also be the one who by no means can clear the guilty? How do these resolve? In our bones, we can feel our sin and rebellion. We know we don't measure up to God. We know we deserve wrath. We know we deserve judgment. But instead, God offers pardon and reconciliation. This is something that's too great for us. In our human relationships, we're aware of this line. There's a line, right, between two sinful people that you cannot cross. If you cross that line, the relationship's broken. In acquaintances, that line could be pretty short. A minor transgression, a slight annoyance, that may break the relationship. Deeper relationships, that line may be further. In a marriage, it may be extreme sin that breaks that line, breaks that relationship. But we're often aware that in our relationships, there is a line, there's a point that we cannot return because it's two sinful people. And when we approach God, we think that there's that same line. We think, okay, it's God, but his, his line's far away. He, he won't really kick me out unless I'm really bad. But then we start thinking about it. This God knows our deepest desires. This God knows our darkest sins. This God sees the things that no one else sees, knows the thoughts, the impulses of your heart, that no one else knows. 
How can there be compassion there? How can there be pardon there? He knows all of it. It doesn't make sense. And that's what brings us into verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. We often use this passage to talk about part of God's character, His transcendence, His greater than us-ness. He's greater than us in every way. And we typically talk about this passage when something unexplainable happens. When we just don't understand why God could let something happen. And sometimes we either seriously, in awe and reverence of God, or sometimes flippantly throw out, well, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His way is higher than our ways. I'm just not going to think about it. I'm not, not, not going to worry about that. He's just different than us. That's not how this passage is using this point. Here it's primarily talking about God's mercy. It's saying it doesn't make sense to you. This mercy, you cannot understand it because it will not make sense for you. You're not going to experience this fully in any of your relationships here on earth. This is something unique to a perfect, loving, merciful, and gracious Father. It's above us. It's not just like a little bit above us to understand. It's a lot above us. As the heavens are higher than the earth, there is no comparison for your relationship with God. I like the story of Hosea. I feel like this brings it into focus a little bit cleaner. Um, If you don't know the prophet Hosea, he was commanded by God to go uh, marry an adulteress. Someone who Hosea knew was going to cheat on him. God says, I know, go marry her anyways. Hosea goes, he marries her. She cheats on him. She goes away. God says, go get her again. Hosea goes and gets her. She cheats on him again. God says, go get her again. This is the kind of love with which the Father loves us. He doesn't just kick us out. He doesn't just say, enough's enough. You had your chance be gone. But he continues to pursue us. When reflecting at the end of Hosea on the just punishment that should come to Israel, also call it Ephraim, Hosea 11, 8-9 says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, one, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in my wrath. The people deserved God's punishment. They deserved God to come in His anger. They deserved Him to come in His wrath. They broke the covenant. They failed. God says, I will not do that. I will not come in my wrath. Instead, he said, I will come as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. I will become a man. I will live your life. I will experience hunger and thirst, pain 
loneliness, sadness, tiredness. The God of the universe says, I will come and I will live the life perfectly. I will do what I have asked you to do. And afterwards, Jesus turns and looks at all of humanity and says, ha ha, this is how you do it. Right? That's not how it happens. That's typically how we treat other people when they fail us, when they don't do something right. We tell them, see, it's just like this. This is what I wanted you to do. Why can't you just do it this way? It's easy. I told you how I wanted it done. Why couldn't you just do it? That's not how the son does it. That's not what happens. After he lives that perfect life, he gets to the end. And I like the way a Puritan describes it. He has this conversation between the father and the son. And he says, My son, poor and miserable souls, they have utterly undone themselves. Justice demands satisfaction. The penalty must be paid. But the son says to the father, bring in all their bills. Bring in all their debts. Bring in everything that you would require at their hand. All of the wrath, all of the punishment, everything that they deserve. Bring it all. I will pay it. And the father tells him, I can't go easy on you. If you decide to do that, I can't go easy. I can't reduce it by one cent. You will take it all. Jesus says, I love them. I'll take it. I'll take it all. I will take it to the last dregs. I will pay to the last penny. For their sake, I am content to undertake it. This is the grace and mercy and gospel that we cannot understand. These are the thoughts These are the ways that are higher than our thoughts, that are higher than our ways. This is the salvation we have been saved with. This is how God is both the just and the justifier, how he is able to accomplish his great and glorious plan, and it was all accomplished through his word. In verse 10, we see, for the rain and the snow come down from, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing of which I sent it. God accomplishes all this by his word. The word of the Lord is an interesting thing to trace through scripture. We see it first in Genesis where God says, let there be light and it was so. In similar fashion, he creates everything we know today. We see it in Sinai when he establishes a new covenant with his people. We see it as he promises to David a a covenant that will never end with a king that will be on the throne forever. We see God using his word through his prophets to change the hearts of his people and to pronounce his judgment. But ultimately, we see it through his son, who, as John tells us, was the word made flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. It is by God's word that he demonstrates his his supreme rule. It's by his word that he accomplishes his purpose. It's through his son, the word made flesh, that he accomplished salvation. And it's by his word that we have that God is still working and still 
accomplishing his purpose. He is still using his word even today to make dead men alive and teaching his people how to forsake wickedness. Because the word of God, it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, of marrow, discerning the thoughts, the intentions of the heart. And what is this ultimate purpose that God's word is working towards in our lives? That's to demonstrate God's graciousness. Verse 12 says, For you shall go out in joy, be led forth in peace. The mountains, the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign, and that will not be cut off. Heaven's going to be a joyous place. It's not going to be a place where you feel like you're missing out. It's going to be the place where God himself dwells, the place where the objects of the curse, the thorns, the thistles, the briars, they will be turned into objects of blessing. The place where we will spend all eternity singing God's praises, celebrating the great victory of the Son. Um, last Sunday, uh, something happened here in Colorado, not sure. Folks were at the Avalanche, won the Stanley Cup. Huh? Uh, The hockey fan is somewhat excited about that. (laughs) But um, I actually had the opportunity to go to that hockey game, uh, not in Florida, because that's in Florida, Um, but um, me and my buddy had a couple folks together. We went to Ball Arena. Uh, It was a watch party. And we got to sit with 18,000 people and watch the game together. And when the abs would score, everything would go nuts. Everyone would cheer, they would yell, they would shout, they'd clap, you have people jumping, you have kids freaking out. It was awesome. And as they came to the last 10 seconds of the game, the abs were winning, and you see folks just getting anticipated, excitement's bubbling, they're starting to stand up, they're starting to yell, they're starting to cheer. The clock ticks down over and over, and eventually, They win. Everyone goes nuts. Everyone jumps. Everyone's excited. No, everyone just can't believe it. People are shouting. Then they go to the trophy presentation. Every time a new person lifts up the trophy, the entire stadium just goes nuts. It was awesome. It was was one of the loudest celebrations I'd ever been a part of. But there's a better celebration, one that that will be put to shame. A hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, no one's going to care, remember, about the Stanley Cup. I mean, it's been a minute, and some of you don't already care who won the Stanley Cup. But there's a better celebration that's coming. And it's one that every person will be excited about. It's not going to be 20,000 people. It's going to be millions upon millions of people, and they're going to rejoice and celebrate this great and glorious thing. We see this image of it in Revelation. You have the great, multiple, uh, great multitude no one could number. All celebrating that Jesus is supreme. His victory wasn't just winning some Stanley Cup. It was winning salvation. He was winning a people 
to himself. He wasn't winning a trophy, an award. He was saving the souls of his people. And we are going to be celebrating and singing those praises forever. It is a great and glorious thing that we're going to be able to be enjoying. There's going to be singing. There's going to be dancing. Creation itself rejoices at God coming, at Christ redeeming his people. So I just want to conclude with some of the last words in the Bible. Once again, another invitation. It's Revelation 22, 16 through 17. Jesus says, I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Come to Jesus. Invite others to come to Jesus. Take the water of price. Take the water of life without price because the price has been paid by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this invitation that you've extended to your people. Thank you that you have allowed us to come to you and that you don't look at us with scorn or with anger. You don't look at us with wrath and judgment, but because of the blood of your Son, all who draw near, they can come to you and receive joy, blessing, forgiveness, and grace. Father, I pray that we are able to come, that we are able to come to the fountain, we are able to come to the water, that we are able to drink deeply, that we are able to find satisfaction for our souls, Help us to no longer be satisfied by the things of this world, but to be ultimately satisfied in you. And may we look forward to the day where we will sing your praises forever. Amen.